0: Hello, everyone. My name is Arti, and this is the Mahabharata. Episode twenty two brought to you by the prefix Dur. In our last episode, we saw the birth of our heroes, the Pandavas, and we learned some closely guarded secrets involving holy men in dirty clothes, potent mantras, aggressive gods, and abandoned babies. And we learned some valuable lessons. We learned that mantras are serious business. We learned that twin gods can give us twin babies. And we learned that you're good for three children with three different men before you're officially a slut. So that's a relief. And we see the Mahabharata continues to provide helpful wisdom on the pressing matters of life. But today we're talking about Gandhari's children. We've been excited about this for a while. She's had the boon from Shiva since she was a teen. Furthermore, her husband, Dhritarashtra, was given the same boon by Vyasa at his birth, so we know there'll be no crisis of paternity. And furthermore to that, Vyasa has also guaranteed the same promise to her on another occasion. So, cross-referenced, annotated, and confirmed, Gandhari is to have 100 boys. How this is going to go exactly is not totally clear. Will she deliver them serially or simultaneously? Will it be vaginal or C-section? Will we have enough anesthesia for 100 epidurals? The details are sketchy, but the mystery is still exciting. The couple has endured the indignities of disability with patience. Now they look forward to the next generation to redress the imbalances that they themselves have suffered. But life just ain't fair, you know, especially to Gandhari. Somehow, things never go as anticipated. She gets pregnant but nine months pass and then 10 and 11 and 12 and no child appears, not even one. Granted, it's hard to know what to expect when you're expecting centuplets, but a full two years elapse, and not a contraction in sight. Why? Ganthari is bewildered and perplexed, anxious and confused, when, to add salt to her wounds, she receives the news that Kunti has given birth to Yudhishthira. The Mahabharata tells us nothing about the relationship between the two women, but this is one of the rare occasions in the text when we see a chink in Gandhari's armour. Knowing that with this news the next generation of kingship has also passed from her, Gandhari begins to beat herself. Mad with frustration and rage, near fainting with pain, she beats upon her hard belly repeatedly, trying to abort her unmoving bump. Finally, something moves and drops out of her. Is it a baby? Even just one? But no. It's nothing like a baby. It's a cold, hard mass of flesh, dense like a ball of clotted blood. This is what she's been carrying around for two years. This is what she's nourished with such hope. Wretched with misery, beside herself with disappointment, she's going to fling it away in anguish when Vyasa, divining her intent, magically appears. ''What are you thinking to do?'' he chides her. ''Have you lost your wits?'' Overwrought with grief, she lashes out at him. ''You promised me a hundred sons. Two years later, all I have is this useless mass of flesh. My rival has just delivered a perfect baby boy. I got pregnant a year before her and I still have nothing.'' this is what you meant by my hundred sons? Vyasa tries to calm her. You will have your hundred sons, Gandhari. Would I lie to you? I wouldn't lie even in jest, let alone in earnest. In fact, as a bonus, I'm going to throw in a daughter, okay? That's a freebie. You'll have 101 children. And Vyasa gets busy. What apparently nobody's known is that he's a true renaissance man. In addition to author, editor, meddler-in-chief, he's also a hobby geneticist and has been in his Himalayan lab for years, experimenting with fertility treatment. Now, though it hasn't passed regulatory tests yet, he's pretty confident his pioneering in vitro technique is going to work. He summons a maid to bring some pots filled with ghee. Then he sprinkles the hard mass of flesh with cold water. As soon as it's doused, it disintegrates into a hundred pieces, the size of a knuckle. He places each of the pieces into the pots and directs his lab assistants to watch them. Then, leaving instructions as to their care, he returns to the Himalayas presumably to write up his research. Now Gandhari is finally going to get her centuplets and a bonus girl, but there are many questions unanswered, notes the social worker in her report. How will she feed them all? How will she tell them apart? Will she remember their names? What about football practice and cricket and gymnastics? that's a lot of carpools. But Gandhari's not concerned with trivialities. She's waiting anxiously for her pots to hatch, and eventually, a year later, the lab assistants signal time. The first to be yanked out of his pot is Duryodhana, coincidentally on the same day as his arch-nemesis Bhima is making his entry into the world. Dad Dhritarashtra is overjoyed, He assembles all the notable Brahmins and soothsayers, as well as Bhishma and Vidura, and they confirm. I get that Yudhishthira is first in line for rule now, and nobody will contest that, he says. But can this one be next? I'd like to resolve this matter now, so there's no confusion later. Before he's even finished speaking, however, Baby Duryodhana starts to cry. And what a cry! like nobody's ever heard before. Not the tiny wail of a baby, but loud and rough, like the braying of a donkey. What's more, it sets off alarming reverberations in the animal world. Beastly scavengers that feast on the dead emerge from their hiding spots, letting off hungry shrieks. Jackals begin to howl. Ominous portents appear in the sky, shooting stars hurtling through the galaxies. All of it spooks the daylight out of the Brahmins. Discard him, they advise. This kid is bad news. Throw him out, abandon him. You have 99 other sons. You don't need this troublemaker. This one's going to destroy the world. What? says Dhritarashtra in horror. No. Of course not, he's my son. But all the advisors are in agreement. This one will decimate the Kuru clan. Let him go for everybody's welfare. Even Vidura chimes in, adding weight to the Brahmin's argument. They say for the family, abandon a son, for the village, abandon a family, for the country, abandon a village, for the soul, abandon the earth. He throws in some John Stuart Mill for good measure. The greatest good for the greatest number is the end result of human action, he quotes. A full operatic chorus develops, building to a crescendo. It riffs on Monty Python. Not every sperm is sacred, not every sperm is good. If a sperm is wicked, chuck it from your hood. They urge Shritarashtra and Gandhari to dump the Ryotana. Now, I know what you're thinking. Isn't it obnoxious and obscene, not to mention outrageous incitement to crime to advise parents to abandon their children, let alone pressuring new parents to sacrifice their firstborn? But we mustn't be naive about this. You can't argue with portents. Asteroids charging helter-skelter, the moon wobbling in the sky, vultures, gizzards lustily licking lips, and the howls of hyenas? Some things wildly askew in the world, and it all started with this tiny tyke. It's a warm night out in the desert. I'm sure he'll be fine. Gandhari and Tritharashtra, however, are perversely stubborn, and Duryodhana, it seems, is here to stay. Over the course of the next month, he'll be joined by 99 brothers and one sister, Dushala, bringing the full number to 101. And surprise, another bonus, he'll also acquire a half-brother. Dhritarashtra, it turns out, has also fathered a child upon Gandhari's maid, conceived while Gandhari was pregnant. This child is Yuyutsu. Yuyutsu will be the second eldest of Dhritarashtra's children, born right after Duryodhana. His name tells us that he's eager to fight, but that's a definite maybe. In fact, spoiler alert, he'll be the only one of Dhritarashtra's sons that won't fight for the Kauravas. And he's the only one who'll survive. In another of our texts, Tragic Ironies, Gandhari's entire army of sons will die, but her maid's son, born of her husband's betrayal, the same husband for whom she's made her awe-inspiring sacrifice, He will thrive. Now, a word about the prefix dur meaning bad or difficult or wicked or somehow sketchy or off. Half of D and G's sons are named with the prefix dur. Duryodhana means terrible warrior, Dushasana is bad government, Dusaha is bad company, Dushkarman is a criminal, Durmukh is just plain ugly. At the beginning of our text, Dhritarashtra laments long and pitifully about some 55 things that he's done wrong that led to disaster. And he ends each recollection with the refrain, It was then that I lost hope for victory. Hmm. How about not naming your children criminals? After all, according to the theory of nominative determinism, which is absolutely a thing, folks will do what they're named to do. So not really fair to blame the kids later, is it? I mean, I hate to hurt a man already down, but this strikes me as a teachable moment. If you've named your son Dushkarman, literally bad actor, you're not setting him up for a seat on the Supreme Court and they're probably not going to allow him into paediatrics. And Dur Pradarshana's birth certificate, which literally inscribes him as annoying, might hamper his ambitions to be a NASA engineer. And what career path did we have in mind for Durdharsha? insolent, insulting, or just plain wrong. If we were drafting a letter to the Ombudsman's office fielding complaints about the Mahabharata, in addition to snakes, cavalier disregard for infant life, disproportionate punishment for petty crimes, we might add insufficient attention to the predictive power of names. But back to our story. With Gandhari's 101 children, we get the birth of our great, restless antagonist, Duryodhana. Though much maligned in tradition, he's interesting. He comes into the world with a howl and he lives life in that mode with unabashed Kshatriya abandon. Brash, fierce, heroic, he's the archetypal Kshatriya take what you want with the force of your arms, offer no apologies. He's pious in a conventional way, charitable, loyal, devoted to his parents, and he's stubborn and persistent. In his view, his father lost his right of primogeniture because of his disability, but he himself is neither blind nor helpless, and he will not be reconciled. Discontentment, is the root of good fortune, he'll say to his father in our next book. He scorns the idea of peaceful coexistence, living without ambition. Stupid is the man who's concerned only for his food and clothing, he says. Pathetic, the man who's incapable of indignation. A common fortune? Who wants a common fortune? I'd rather be dead than watch my rivals prosper. Duryodhana, in other words, is the perfect foil to Yudhishthira, the son of Dharma, who, in camera 2, can be seen daily imbibing moral lessons, pondering the mysteries of the world. Duryodhana has no interest in the bigger questions, no concern with philosophical inquiry. He's fully vested in this world, with no apologies. Let's switch to camera two, which is following Pandu. Our text says, As Pandu saw his five handsome sons grow up in the wilderness, his heart rejoiced. His ancestral obligations are fulfilled. His children show promise. He's retired to cottage country. His work in the world is done. It's springtime in the forest and mating season. The mountainside is lush with flowers, the woods are in full bloom, and the forest creatures are giddy in erotic play. One day, Pandu's out for a stroll by himself, and Madri follows him, alone, looking irresistibly sexy in a skimpy, sheer garment. The autopsy report will state only coronary thrombosis. It'll say nothing of deer making love in the woods, or curses of retribution, or Pandu's years of stern celibacy, or a beautiful woman yearning for love. The sweet scent of springtime will not be in the report, nor talk of passion that blazes like a brush fire, churning the senses out of control, fueled by irresistible desire, overmastering reason. As if impelled by time itself, Pandu forces himself upon Madri, and a moment later, he's dead. For an instant, Madhuri's uncomprehending, continuing to hold his body gone suddenly still in her arms. Then she begins to shriek. Kunti, she screams. Kunti, come, leave the children, come alone. Oh, I am lost, I'm lost. A frantic Kunti comes running to stop short at the sight of Pandu lying prone beside his junior wife. How? Could you? She bursts out, raging, furious. How could you? You knew the consequence. You were supposed to protect him from himself. I've controlled myself for years. How could you do this? I couldn't stop him, sobs Madri. I tried to stop him. He overpowered me. They wail together in their grief. You're lucky, cries Kunti. You got to see him happy before he died. I'll never have that. The shock and horror of their situation starts to unfold upon them. They're in the woods, two women with five small children, and their one heroic recourse is gone. In our next episode, the women must make fateful decisions. What will they do? How will they live? What will happen to the children? Let's find out next time if you'll join me for another episode of The Mahabharata.